You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're still in uh, the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Right. Page 42 of my notes. Get, so. those, <laughs> get those together in the right order. Yeah. Well, and that's always the fun part, trying to keep everything straight and which goes, what goes where. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the story of our lives. So <laughs> Yeah, basically. So now uh, as we, you were last with us, if you were following us on last week's episode, David was about to sing. David was about to sing, and we're going to talk about the song. And Okay, so number one, we're in Samuel, and so automatically that tells you there are problems trying to translate this. This is not an easy book to translate. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, we're getting ready to run on to a prime example. Number two, we're getting ready to go into poetry. Poetry is also very difficult to translate because poetic language doesn't follow the same rules that typical narrative language follows. So um, we kind of gave some background about the events leading up to this last week, and we talked about the significance of uh, you know, the fact that it is recorded in Jasher, offered some conjecture, because it's really all anyone can offer about Jasher. But uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 19. And this is the song that David commanded be taught to Judah. So he says, your glory, O Israel, is slain in your high places. So that's your first line. Uh, high places, these are hilltops where sacrifices are offered. Yep. And so we've run into those before. Um, later, these high places are going to be outlawed. But at this point in time, they're still being used. We saw them in 1 Samuel 9 when Saul uh, participated in the sacrifice that Samuel had offered up at Saul's anointing to be king. We also saw it in 1 Samuel 10, when Saul met a group of prophets returning from a high place. So there's still use at this point in time because there is no temple. Shiloh's been destroyed. We have a few other places where worship is going on in the country. But we don't have a, I'm sorry, they say the temple, the tabernacle and the the worship complex at Shiloh has been destroyed. The temple has not been built yet. So um, in this in this line, David is referring to Saul, your glory, O Israel. So he's calling uh, Saul the glory of Israel, and he has died in a high place. However, which <laughs> I, I, and I just want to point this. Out. I mean, I, I know we've mentioned something similar to this before, and sorry, I'm yeah, good. Felt like I kind of. Just tuned back in, but the uh, by David starting the psalm like this, we've kind of mentioned something similar before. That when David assembled his army, it wasn't necessarily to go out and campaign to fight and take over the throne, right? And we see that based largely on the way David behaves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't assemble an army to go take over a throne and then go where the person who sits on it is not, right? Um, and so I think this kind of highlights that David assembled his army mainly for protection. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the things I, that I think we, we kind of want to point out because I was always under the impression growing up, listening to the stuff in Sunday school and even in my Bible class, uh, mm-hmm. for because I had Bible class as part of our curriculum growing <laughs> up, that... Um, Homeschooling for the win, folks. <laughs> that's right. Well, and, and, and I did some video courses. You didn't do the no, video courses. So I did some video courses, and it was very, it very much seemed like David was putting together this army to go and fight Saul, but never could follow through. Yeah, no, that that's so not the point, and we're going to so we're going to see that particularly as we get into chapter um, chapter three, and we're going to see how much that is not what's supposed to happen. And you know, David just killed the Amalekite for saying that he had killed Saul. Yeah. And so David never wanted to kill Saul. As a matter of fact, he had t- two chances to, to kill Saul, and he turns him down. And so now he, he's grieving the loss of Saul, and we're going to hear what he thinks about Saul in his own words, which, you know, what better place to find out what David thinks about this than what right. David has to say. Exactly. Carefully concealed in straight, books. Straight from the proverbial <laughs> horse's mouth. Exactly. 
But, however, even though we get the the gist of David's um, feelings and attitude towards Saul, we do have some difficulty with this text. If you look this verse up in English translations and just compare different translations, you're going to find out that this word is very difficult to to translate. So, which word are we on? We're on glory, okay. because it's not your typical word for glory. Usually, when we talk about glory in Hebrew, it's kavod. This is not kavod. Um, I, I can't believe I didn't write it down, but. Just to give you an idea of how difficult. <laughs> Should I run to Bible Hub real yeah, quick? Yeah, people aren't going to care. Uh, but I'm it's, a, well, I do. <laughs> you do. Okay, yeah. So um, to give you an idea, I'm just going to go through some different English translations. Beauty, glory, splendor, honor, prince, pillar, and gazelle are all possible translations for this word. I'm sorry, run over those again. <laughs> Beauty, glory, splendor, honor, prince, pillar, and gazelle. Okay. <laughs> I would have I would have expected prince based on the ways we've referred to Saul previously. Personally. Right. Zamora is the one that offers that. Now I personally don't see how he gets prince from the word here. I I, I just don't see it. Okay. Well, I mean I, I mean, but it's, it's Samara. I mean, he he's an expert, so I'm, I'm sure he has a reason. I just didn't feel like he explained it very well in his commentary. Um, I don't see where pillar comes from. Now, that's used in the Septuagint, and I don't understand why they would do that. But uh, evidently, there is this idea that I think we can get out of it that this is some, glory, honor, prince, beautiful. I mean, glory, honor, and, and splendor all fit. Uh, and it, it, gazelle is even a legitimate translation. And okay, I, I, I know, I know. I can actually see gazelle before I can see prince when I'm looking at the Hebrew. Ha- Hasibi? Has- Sounds about right. That's, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, splendor or gazelle. But yeah, I mean, I, mean, it, I don't know, because Glory, um, from what I understand, has the what kavod anyway mm-hmm. generally has a, a an idea of weight to it, mm-hmm. heaviness, yeah, yeah. weightiness, which yeah. you actually would think would fit more uh, completely into a dirge, to right? Have this this sense of weight, but he's gone with something more like splendor or beauty. Was splendor mm-hmm. beauty? Yeah, or a gazelle, which be which be a gazelle would be considered kind of light footed, right? So well, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's well, and it's, it's opposite of what you'd expect. It is, and the now the rabbis, you know, of course, they offer some great explanations, and they say that basically David is taking these two words, uh, one for for glory, let's just go with the ESV, and gazelle, and he's paying Saul a double compliment. And, and since it's poetry, you know, you do use that kind of visual language to convey an idea, and you know, and gazelles are used to Reference beauty. We see that a lot in Song of Songs. And so... It, Saul was tall. Was he also thin? Oh, good question. <laughs> I don't know. We just know he's tall. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm, I don't know. It's, a, it's a good question. But we're going to come back to it because there's a reason why I think David used this word. And uh, we're going to go through the whole psalm before we talk about why. Because I think you'll see it once we have all the other pieces in place. Okay. So the second line... How the mighty have fallen. So this is the first of three times we're going to encounter this refrain. How the mighty have fallen. Of course, the word there is gibor, gibberim, which connects us back to Genesis 6, which we've mm. also heard applied to Saul. And um, we, we shouldn't be surprised to, to hear this kind of praise coming from David. And so verse 20, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ash- Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. So David's admonishing the people, keep this to yourself. Mm-hmm. The, this is a national shame. You don't need to be out there telling everyone else so they can feel good about our failure, our, our hurt, and our wounding. And I found it interesting that in the song, David's going to mention daughters three times. And I, I have a feeling there's more significance to that than has been explored. Because there's a lot of to-do made about the fact that how the mighty is fall, are fallen mm-hmm. is mentioned three times, and then he mentions daughters three times, and nothing said about that. So uh, I'm not going to offer a great 
solution for that, but I think there might be something there. Okay. Because we know that, that women played an important role in mourning. You were talking about that last, that last episode. Uh, they played a, an important role in celebration. And we saw that when David killed Goliath and they were singing the songs about how David, uh, Saul had killed his thousands, David mm-hmm. had killed mm-hmm. his ten thousands. And frequently it was the songs of women that brought the news to people first. They, they heard the news from these women singing these songs before they could, would have heard it anyplace else. And you can kind of imagine it, you know, you get your village full of women and children waiting for the warriors to come back. And as the first ones arrive in the village with news of who fell, who lived, who did something amazing, who had something devastating happen. And the, these women rushing out, talking to the first few men that they encounter, formulating their songs, going back, singing these songs. Mm-hmm. And then the next wave of women catching it and the next wave until the entire village was finally caught up in the songs of these women telling the story of these battles and celebrating what was going on or lamenting what had happened. Right. And, you know, you, you s- definitely see that in the Gospels where women are often the first ones who proclaim what's getting ready to happen. We see it with Mary and Elizabeth and their songs. We see it again with the woman at the well going to her city to tell. And then, of course, at the tomb where the women um, relay the good news. And we also see it, you know, throughout the beginnings of the church where Christianity spread among the women because, again, the news of the kingdom often arrives first on the voices of women. And I think that's a really interesting thing to point out because it's supported biblically. Yeah. Not just culturally, and then when you get to cultural and historical examples, then it just explodes from there. Sure. So, so verse two, uh, you mountains of Gilboa, let no rain or dew upon you. Let there be no rain or dew upon you. So cursing the land in response to the death of someone who was respected or loved was very common. Matter of fact, we have a Ugaritic curse over land with almost the exact same language. So David's very much keeping with the cultural conventions of his time. Well, it also echoes Genesis 3, right? It does. Is that, you have something about that in your notes, right? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. But it's, there is a—we can talk a little bit about how the, the actions of humanity actually impact the planet. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's obviously right there. I mean, you have da- uh, uh, David and Goliath. Nope. Wrong couple. <laughs> um, the, you have Adam and Eve— Different kind of couple altogether. I mean, I was thinking couple as in a pair of people, not like like an involved couple. Well, no, it's harder to get much more involved than taking off a person's head. Fair enough. The uh, wives do it all the time. So you have you have Dave and Goliath. Mm -hmm. No, not Dave and Goliath. (laughs) Try again. I'm stuck. Adam and Eve. You have Adam and Eve, and oh my goodness, I can't, <laughs> what's wrong with my brain? And they, you know, they say, eat the fruit and surely you will die. And then we have this idea of death entering the world when they disobey mm-hmm. God and the spiritual death that overcomes them. And then what happens? God curses the land because humanity, the crowning jewel of creation, as it were, has died. Has died. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it, yeah it's it well it is it's you right there that in your notes i don't have that in my notes but see how quickly you thought on your feet i offered you this great opportunity and you took it <laughs> i got to do a thing <laughs> well and no it, but there is I mean, there, there's this idea and i want to point out because i have to point this out every time we talk about that adam and eve are never cursed in genesis 3 right never the snake is cursed the ground is cursed but never the people. So um, God lists some consequences for exactly. their actions. Consequences yeah. they chose. And so, yes, I, I, I always like to point that out because I get so tired of people talking about the curse of Eve and the curse of Adam. I, go back to your Bible, read it. Uh, so anyway, we, we've got this curse coming from David, but he extends the curse. He says, nor fields, nor offerings. And this word for offerings, and I've got the Hebrew consonants written out, but I forgot to put the vowels in, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> um, it. It's the offering set aside for priest from the first of the harvest. Specifically, okay. that's what that word refers to. So 
David is cursing the land with absolute barrenness. I mean, it's unfit for any kind of human use. Because if you can't collect that first fruits offering, you don't have enough to do that. Right. Then obviously nothing else is going to follow. So he, he's saying, I went completely useless. And I think what David is doing is actually referring back to that rule of harem, that, that, that ban that uh, devoted to utter destruction. And he's placing it on the ground. And when you did that, you remember, we've talked about it before, when that karem was, was enacted, it was a wartime sacrifice, and mm. it was being devoted to God. And I think David's calling on a similar idea here when he's talking about this land, that it needs to be completely devoted to God, and no human should use it. So if something is not fit for humans' use, it has to be available to God, or is reserved to be strictly available to God. So... Verse 21c, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul was not anointed with oil. So again, we get another reference to the Gibberim. Defiled carries the, the idea, at least here, this word used for defile um, is being cast off or rejected. And Art Scroll actually translated this a little differently. They said, for rejected there was the shield of the mighty ones, the shield of Saul, as if unanointed by oil. And Rashi had some interesting comments on this. Rashi interprets it as the shield casting off the oil and becoming useless. Well, now if you apply this to Saul, Mm -hmm. Saul, who had been anointed, he cast off that anointing and and he became useless. And so there's a really interesting picture there. I don't know if that's what David is saying intentionally, but I definitely can see how being an inspired work and how poetry does work, it often works at those multiple levels of um, revelation and, and holding many meanings. Yeah. So only well, uh, in uh, the JPS, it says mm-hmm. the shield was uh, the shield of Saul. Uh, sorry, for there, the shield of the warriors lay rejected, the shield of Saul polished with oil no more. So it's kind of a similar right. feel to that. Yeah. It was used to art scroll. Mm-hmm. That's the art scroll, and, the, and a lot of times the art scroll will follow Rashi's um, translation, so you don't have a consistent translation by one person or even a, a single committee. They're pulling translations from various sure. scholars and rabbis. So it, it's kind of interesting to see what you get. But without the anointing, whether we're talking about Saul or the shield specifically, they're, they're useless. Right. Because if you don't have that leather with the oil on it, well, then it's it just cracks when an arrow hits it, you mm-hmm. know, it just mm-hmm. breaks right through. And so while David's song is one of praise, um, he may be hinting a little bit at Saul's ultimate condition that was in casting off his anointing. So verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. So David's praising Jonathan and Saul for being you know, tenacious and effective warriors. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to do what it takes to, to make sure that their weapons get used. But what's interesting here is the word for fat. It, it's kalev. And when we find the word kalev used, usually it is about sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Of the 92 times we find it used in the Bible, 50 times it's used in Leviticus. And if you know Leviticus, you know that it's all going to be sacrificial language, mm-hmm. and especially when compared with blood. Right. And so we have both those items, blood and fat, in this verse. So there, there's some sacrificial language going on here. So verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lo- of lovely, sorry, beloved and lovely, in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. So we know that Saul and Jonathan were always on the best of terms. I mean, after all, Saul tried to kill him at least once, possibly twice, maybe more. We don't know. But Jonathan remained with his father. And that's that kind of loyalty in Jonathan remaining with those that he loves that we celebrate. And he even wanted to do this with David. And he commends them as warriors, comparing them to eagles and lions. And the rabbis picked up on this, and they used it as an admonishment that one should be like an eagle and lion when studying Torah. And they said, this is what David's commending them. It's not necessarily their warlike aspects, but the fact that they studied Torah. Probably not going to go with that, but it's, uh, it's just a good illustration of how the rabbis use the text. Yeah. 
So we have our third reference to daughters in verse 24. Your daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you, in lux- clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now, the daughters of Israel here are being contrasted with the daughters of the Philistines and the daughters of the uncircumcised. Women of Israel should weep, but the Philistine women should remain silent. Rabbi Yehuda claimed that this verse is about Saul personally giving scarlet and gold to the women in the country while the troops were away. Probably not literally what happened, but having Saul as king did seem to bring some level of economic stability to the land, mm-hmm. which would enable women to enjoy these kind of luxuries. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about Saul being the person who is beginning to end the things that Hannah was protesting— which were the things in Judges, mm-hmm. then what do you have now? Well, you have, you know, have women can be part of commerce again in a legitimate way. Right. And that they can, they can have things. Um, you don't have the Philistines constantly coming and taking all your stuff. You know, there's, well, there's a lot of that. That's kind of what I read it as, is he brought wealth to the nation. Exactly. I think that's what they're hinting at. I actually want to look something up right quick because you made me think of something okay well i'm not sure what i made you think of Uh, it's always scary whenever you make me think of things and okay king king of canaan it's interesting because if you go back and look at deborah and her song we're gonna find out that deborah's song actually plays a part in all of this too okay Uh, but when you look at deborah's song when we get to the end of that, you see that the reasons why the Canaanites were, were attacking were to take the things that belonged to the women or the things that the women had made. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and to outright take the women too, in, the, in some cases. So the welfare of the women really was a huge part of warfare. And that was one of the, the ways that you measured the success of your nation. How well were the women doing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think we need to keep that in mind. If the women are suffering and the women are having their problems, the Bible's saying things aren't happening the way God wants them to happen. Makes and sense. I know, right? I mean, it's just, it's amazing how plain it is once you start actually reading what's on the page. So the other thing that's going on here is a direct reversal. Remember when David came to national prominence, it was because he did kill Goliath. And so the women sang about David. They, they sang these great praises to David. Now David's saying, stop singing about me. You need to sing about Saul. And so David actually says, this is the reversal that needs to take place. And so this is a huge turnaround from what you would expect, especially Mm -hmm. knowing that Saul wanted to kill David and they were supposed to be, you know, those enemies that we were told they were. So verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain in your high places. Again, another, um, another re- reference to the high places. Um, second time that we hear this, that the mighty have fallen. Second time we're going to hear about the high places. This time, Jonathan's the one who's dead, not just Saul. Verse 26, I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. So David spares verse for Jonathan alone. And, you know, before this, David had been focused on Saul or Saul and Jonathan. And there's a national obligation to, to grieve for the, uh, the king and the heir apparent. Mm-hmm. But David's also taking a minute to grieve this very personal loss. And we covered in a previous episode how this does not prove that David and Saul were in a homosexual relationship. What I am going to limit myself to saying is now that we see the kinds of marriages that David has engaged in, right? we can see that his wives are, are they're marriages of utility. They are not marriages of love, and we're never told once that David loves anyone apart from Jonathan. And that includes, you know, even his own brothers, his family members, his kids. Mm -hmm. And so David's not a very affectionate uh, person to begin with. But I, I think what we're seeing here and what we have the most reason to believe is that in Jonathan, David had found his only true friend and the only person he can really trust. Because we're going to find that most of the people that are in David's courts, he really can't trust. So... Verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So this is our final refrain that the mighty have fallen. Last time we're going to hear it. 
uh, Saul and Jonathan, they're characterized as the weapons of war themselves. Right. They, they aren't using the weapons of war. They are actually the weapons of war. And because they're dead, you know, they're no longer able to protect the people. So what I found interesting about this, and I'm going to preface this by saying, again, this is me. This is not uh, what I'm finding in any commentaries. So uh, take it for what it's worth. I may be completely off base, and if I am, well, somebody show me why. But um, David portrays Saul and Jonathan's death as a sacred event. Okay. David calls Mount Gilboa a high place, or Bema, uh, twice, mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. the place where sacrifices were made. Right. David essentially declares that Mount Gilboa should be under a ban, under Karem, so that it was no longer useful for humanity. It should be set aside for God's use alone. And not even an offering by the people for God should be given up. It shouldn't be collected from this mountain. Remember, there are times and places where even what you captured from your enemies should just be destroyed. It shouldn't be set aside for a, a sacrifice for God. With right. Saul and the Amalekites, that was, oh, I just saved the best to give, an, uh, to give an offering. And David is making this, hey, I don't have to be told to do this. I, I want to do it immediately because the loss is so great. Mm-hmm. He also used that imagery of the sacrifice, the, the fat and the blood, and the refrain, how the mighty have fallen connects us back to Genesis 6. And remember how, so we've got this, this whole melee of, of imageries that, that the Bible has been building on, and David pulls them all together in this really succinct way, that mm-hmm. there is this battle, but the, the battle is a sacred event, and that even the deaths of someone can be a sacred event. And now remember that first word that we talked about, your glory, O Israel, is slain on the high places. So I, I mentioned that it could also be translated gazelle. Now, a mm-hmm. gazelle is a very interesting animal when you stop and look at it. Under the Torah, it's a perfectly acceptable animal to eat. Okay. It's got the cloven hoofs, it chooses cut. There's nothing wrong with eating it. It is not an acceptable sacrifice. Right. It is not something that can be taken from someone's own flocks. Mm-hmm. So it cannot be given up as a sacrifice. And, and, I think David in this song really manages to capture that conflicted imagery of Saul because he he's a king but he's not an acceptable king. Right. He he's a sac- he's sacrificed on this hill but he's not an acceptable sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It it it's a death that's necessary just like eating is necessary but it's not going to do anything for the redemption of the nation. Sure. And I, I kind of really, I like that because when you see the sons of God and their sons, the, the Gibberim have, have to fall in order to be displaced by the son of God. Mm-hmm. And so Saul, the original one who was anointed, has to fall to be displaced by David. Mm. And so Saul's death makes room for the true king. And, but his fate foreshadows what's going to happen with Jesus. And we talked about this some last week, where that, that imagery was already starting to come out with the death of the Amalekite. And you know, it, it's fitting, it's very fitting that David's reign, his glorious reign, the beginning of the golden age of Israel, begins with the death of a leader who fails to lead the nation in proper worship. Right. And you kind of feel like you, I mean, when I was reading this, I felt like I just kept getting hammered with that point over and over again in these opening chapters. So, and it's real easy to to feel like as we read through the, especially the the next few chapters, that we're just in this real fast-paced, hard-hitting narrative that's just boom, 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 boom uh, of action. Yeah. And yet we still find this, this, continuing theme corrupt leadership has to die to make room for righteous and proper leadership right so we're going to be moving into chapter two i would like to take a moment to say we're not suggesting anyone start a revolution (laughs) you're right so you know (laughs) we're talking about 
biblical types in history, we're not. Don't anyone take it to mean that we're saying <laughs> we should, you know, roll out the guillotine for any of our political leaders or anything like that. Not what I'm doing here. <laughs> right. No, we, we, <sighs> oh my goodness. Paul, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is where we are in the New Testament. Right. There, there's right. no hand to hand combat in the New Testament for believers to be, you got to stop. The, 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 the the idea that faith now is how we fight. It so. just kind of struck me as we were about to leave that I was like, I want to I want to make absolutely clear that anytime we bring up any of this stuff, <laughs> we are not suggesting that right. Christians need to overthrow the government. Because the thing is, if we've learned anything from Scripture, is that every one of us is just as corrupt as the next person, given the chance, given the opportunity. <laughs> I mean, we. We do the best we can, and that's and that's actually it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm going to touch on something you said a few weeks ago, uh, probably a month or two ago at this point, where you were talking about how the good Saul did was greatly due to the presence of the restricting presence of Jonathan or Samuel Samuel in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. I'm like, well, that's just kind of life. I mean, that and and this kind of bears out. I mean that we. If you look at the psychological data, we have to have other people. Humans are made to live in community, mm-hmm. and we do our best. We spur each other on to do the best we can in groups. And so, yeah, it, it partly was that. But that's, I mean, name name a person who doesn't need some <laughs> kind of restricting influence of other people in their lives in some respect. I mean, I have like a total smart aleck remark. I'm just going to refrain from saying, but I want to be congratulated for my silence. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's, you know, there's... No, there is that. Well, and we can also see that same principle because when David, he's waiting for his chance to, to ascend to his rightful position in society, mm. he doesn't act to make it happen. Right. And so anytime there is a war with David, this is, it's always against somebody who is directly attacking or oppressing Israel. Mm-hmm. It, it's not, oh, I'm going to just try to be, go out and just, do what I can to cause trouble with everyone else. It was never about acquisition. Well, in the end, it does become about acquisition, but it's acquisition that was promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. And it was acquisition that the the children of Israel failed to fulfill whenever they came in in Judges 1, and we saw what happened with that. Mm -hmm. And there was... After Judges 1, there was no more claiming of land because nobody was following God. And matter of fact, the other interesting thing that's going to be uh, coming up David's first few battles, I mean, he doesn't even fight them. God fights for him. Right. So uh, we're going to talk some more about that. You know, again, David's going to fail. He's going to mess up. But that's kind of the point. As great as David is, he's never going to be enough. Mm-hmm. So we learn what we can that's good about David. And the things that he messes up, this is where we learn to do better. And that's, we, we need to hang on to that because a lot of people have held David up as like the end-all be-all. He's not. And then the other extreme is, well, he couldn't do anything right. And so one of the hard parts of, for me growing up is learning that there is no such thing as a completely good guy and there's no such thing as a completely bad guy. There, there's mixtures in all of us. And so you have to take the good where you can find it mm-hmm. and leave the bad alone. So... Anyway, we're moving into chapter two, and this is going to feel like incredibly action-packed after the last chapter. It's relatively straightforward, and the writer is presenting us with the mechanics of how David begins his rise to power after being this renegade outlaw. And, you know, you got to think, this is a guy who was running with a group of young men that Nabal called terrorists. <laughs> right. So, you know, this wasn't like an easy transition. and. All of this, though, is very necessary to understand what follows in David's kingdom. So verse 1, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David's still at Ziklag. He hasn't left. And that after this refers to that period of mourning for, for Saul. And David inquires of the Lord, not 
moving back to Israel until he has clear instructions. He's waiting to make sure that whatever he does is in alignment with God's will. And, you know, despite the fact that Saul's gone, which, you know, that seemed to be the big reason why he had to leave in the first place. So now all obstacles are out of his way. Uh, David's going to pause. He's going to ask God what he should do. And this is one of the primary differences between David and Saul, because Saul had a tendency to act on external evidence and go, oh, well, this makes sense, or I should do this. I mean, he, he wasn't always consulting with God. Matter of fact, Samuel usually had to go to him and say, hey, this is what you need to do. So when David is getting ready to leave Ziklag and he stops to ask directions, despite the fact that it seems like it should be a no-brainer, we, we have this really great contrast. And we, we also see that he's following the, the same pattern, that he's being consistent like he was at Keilah mm-hmm. before he went to that city. He, he asked once a very broad question, and then he asked again more specifically. So Hebron is um, very significant for several reasons. This is a place where Abraham had settled. That's in Genesis 13. And it's right after he separates from Lot. Sarah, when she dies there at Hebron, uh, that's Genesis 23, 2. She's buried there. Abraham will later be buried there. Jacob, Isaac, um, Leah will be buried there. Rachel's not buried there. We assume, uh, well, we know she's not buried there. But So this, this is a very important place. Uh, it's the largest city of refuge, and that's in Joshua twenty-one thirteen. So it's it's for at least for that area. So uh, a city of refuge was a place where someone who might be accused of murder could run and hide out mm-hmm. until uh, they could get a fair trial and they could remain within the city and be protected. And you, no one was supposed to be able to kill them within the city limits. Right. So we also know it's the home to the Arianic Arianic priesthood. So Joshua twenty one thirteen. Now, the Zohar, which I did not read the Zohar. This is just part of the, the art scroll collection. Mm-hmm. They include some quotes from that. Uh, I don't ascribe to the Zohar, but occasionally you get some kind of glimmers to how um, different people process these passages. Sure. sure. They, they say that this was David's way of joining himself with the patriarchs who were buried there, that by returning to the spot, there was some kind of spiritual connection. Of course, we know in Zohar that returning to Rachel's tomb is, is a huge um, pilgrimage that they think people should undertake. Right. Well, so, I mean, it would, if, it would at least be a political uh, move to go and, and put yourself in that position. Yeah. It, well, and I think the Zohar takes it too far. Uh, but we do find that David's life often seems to be a microcosm of Israel's history itself, which we also see that with Christ's life. But it, so it's appropriate that David would return to this place that has so much significant for, significance for Israel as a nation. But, you know, there's also some very practical reasons. The size of the city makes it a town that's capable of helping support the 600 men, women, and children he's bringing with him. Uh, Abigail probably had land holdings there because um, it belonged to the Calebites, and she had married in, at least married into the clan if she wasn't from that clan. Ahinoam, David's first wife, was from a nearby city called Jezreel, or a nearby area, Abathar, David's priest, he would have been accepted back by all of the priests that lived within the city. And by living inside the city, David was protecting himself against anyone who might want to avenge Saul's death on him. Yeah. So it actually works very well. Plus, Hebron's at the center of the Judah's tribal land. So it kind of gives him a buffer from anybody who might have been loyal to Saul. Which might make it a, a point as to why David might have wanted the, all of Judah to learn this song. Right. So as pe- people are on their way to the city, they're hearing the news that it wasn't David and that David was sorry about exactly. Saul's death. Exactly. And we're going to see how actually David's expressed grief over Saul's son, uh, Ishbosheth, Ish-bosheth um, is part of what wins the nation over. And it's David's willingness to join in this experience of grief with the nation and not to think that he's above it or to celebrate his perceived victory that allows people to trust him. Mm -hmm. Now, we can definitely see echoes of that in Christ's ministry. 
So, but we never talk about that. I mean, when we talk about David, we don't often talk about how he leads through example. And one of those examples is through lament. So in, in verses two and three, we're told that David takes both of his wives and all of his men, they take their families and they, they settle into both Hebron proper, but also the surrounding cities kind of spread out the burden, presumably. Mm. I mean, you bring 600 men and they all have their wives. And like we talked about before, we're easily looking at anywhere from 1,800 to 2,100 people. And in taking the, the families with them, David's basically saying, we're here to stay. We, we aren't going back to Ziklag. This is not just a visit. This mm-hmm. is us settling down. A home, my home now, it's Israel. That's where I belong. So verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, this is a holy political act. There is no reference to God. His name is never invoked. There's no prayer, nothing like that. And what's interesting, uh, Brigham pointed this out, that unlike the secret anointing that had no public effectiveness, you know, from Saul at the very mm-hmm. beginning of 1 Samuel, now this public anointing, has complete public and immediate public effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so David is immediately just elevated within the tribe of Judah. Now, he's not the the king over all of Israel yet. He's just over the tribe of Judah. And Judah has had a long history of of separating itself and operating kind of independently from the rest of the nation. Yeah, we see this most clearly, like in the in the battles, um, First Samuel eleven eight and First Samuel fifteen fourteen, where we get the number of Israel's troops, and then we get the number of Judah's troop. Yeah, we've commented on that before. Yeah, and you're kind of starting to see why this may have been part of a divine plan too. So David's going to rule over Judah for seven years and six months. I mean, he's making progress. He's Another question I have, does this kind of set the precedence for later when the kingdom splits? It does. It does. But what's interesting is when the kingdom splits, it doesn't split the way you think it will. Because you have the southern and the northern tribes where Judah and Benjamin are the two, mm-hmm. and then every, the other ten go their separate way. Here, it's the, the primary division is between Judah and Benjamin. Okay. And yeah. so... I I want to do some more research into exactly what the implications of that are. I'm sure there's got to be some kind of great message in that. Right. Uh, I just haven't got there yet. But yeah, I've been like had that like rolling around in the back of my head, seeing if it picks up anything on our journey there. So yeah, David's, I mean, he's starting to get to where he, he was told he was going to be, but he's not, I mean, he's having to use some, some, patience here. I mean, he's been in Ziklag. I forget how long he's been there. And now he's going to rule seven and a half years and he's still waiting to, to see if God's going to be true to his word. Right. And you know, Saul couldn't wait seven days for Samuel to arrive to offer a sacrifice. And here David's being asked to wait seven years. Again, we see that, that distinction between the two men. So uh, verse 4, this is the last part of it, says, When they told David it was the men from Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So we are going to have to refresh our memories a little bit about who Jabesh Gilead right. was. Yeah, we, we remember, uh, if you've just been listening for Samuel, you know that the guys who went out to the battlefield, that they collected, uh, actually went into the Philistine towns, collected Saul's body, and gave him a proper burial. First, they burned his body so it couldn't be desecrated anymore. Mm-hmm. And But they did not want his uh, body left on display in the Temple of Dagon. So when we first encountered the men of Jabesh Gilead, that's way back in Judges 21.8. This was the only city that didn't join in the battle against the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, Okay. when the concubine had been raped and murdered and dismembered. Got you. So when they didn't join in the battle, the rest of Israel turned and attacked the city, 
mm-hmm. killed mm-hmm. everyone except for 400 virgins, and they took those women and gave them to the members of the tribe of Benjamin. And these would have been the maternal ancestors, probably mother, grandmother, aunts of mm-hmm. Saul. Sure. So Saul had a familial uh, connection, but Saul also was connected to them because when the Ammonites attempted to take over Jabesh Gilead, the first part of his reign, Saul immediately rose to their defense. So Saul was kind of seen as their special protector. They had a special connection there. Mm -hmm. Now, because of all this history, Jabesh Gilead on the whole wasn't a city that was, you know, on particularly friendly terms with the rest of Israel. And plus it was a very outlying city, so it was very easy to neglect. Mm-hmm. So to actually include it within the kingdom and to give it that same level of concern that, he, that Saul should have given the, the central cities of Israel was very telling. It was one of the few things in his reign he got right. It was to say, this, king, this city is just as important to the kingdom as everyone else. Right. So now we see David picking up the, the good thing that Saul did and reenacting it. And David opens up his message with commending their chesed, their loving kindness to Saul. And he prays that God's going to show them chesed. Uh, but then he promises to do good to them because of what they've done for Saul. And he, he presents himself as the proper conduit through which God should give them this loving kindness because David's going to do good. So therefore God can demonstrate his loving kindness through David. Now, David's always the politician. And we should never forget that because you kind of have to ask how much of a threat is in that last line. Hey, Saul's dead, mm-hmm. but I'm king over Judah. Right. So your, your protector, he's gone. You might need me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very politically correct move to make, but it's also, you know, that's the thing about politics. You can sincerely honor someone while still kind of, you know, pulling the strings to make sure things go your way. Uh, and that's what David's doing. And it's, it's a smart political move on his part. Mm-hmm. Because if he can get one of the Benjaminite cities to, to kind of come to his side, now he might have some hope of winning all of Benjamin over. Now, it doesn't work. But, you know, it's probably worth the effort. You know, it's just sending a few messengers. Not a big deal. So, but despite the fact that it's a political move, we shouldn't discount the fact that it is the right move. And it's the right move because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, if you're the new king coming in after the former king's been dethroned, mm-hmm. you don't offer chesed. You don't offer loving kindness. You don't tell them you'll do good. You kill everyone who supported the old king. Right. You make an example of them. You prevent further uprisings and rebellions. Mm-hmm. And for David to do this, was radical. And this is not something anybody in the kingdom would have expected. And, and, you know, for his supporters to see him take this stand would have just completely blown their minds. But it also tells you what a great leader David was, because it would have been at this point that a lesser man would have lost his following, Mm -hmm. because it would have been seen as as weakness. And once again, we see David bringing the nation into alignment with the ethics and morals of God's kingdom in a way that nobody else has done before. Right. So David's claim, though, to the throne is not without challenge. And I I think it's interesting how this is another one of those stories that I never heard in Sunday school. And we are told that we're not, sorry, my brain got ahead of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> we aren't really told anything about Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Um, in this story, we hear, we find that he actually plays a pretty critical role. Uh, Ishbosheth is the next in line to succession. He's one of Saul's sons. Right. And just so there's no confusion, yes, I understand. That we were told in 1 Samuel 31 that all of Saul's sons died. Once again, we have to look at the fact that. Maybe it just meant all that were on the battlefield. There you go. All usually only refers to the people who are being impacted by a specific circumstance and situation. So the fact that Saul has another son who was probably left at home to make sure that if everyone else did die, 
Right. There was still an heir. Now, this guy we haven't, you know, he's not like Jonathan. He's not been David's friend. He's been somewhere, you know, lurking around the, the palace. Uh, we, we don't know much about him at all. So, matter of fact, his introduction doesn't even begin with him. His introduction in verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner. Good old, good old Abner Ben Ner. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> so, okay, you, you, I don't know why that amuses me so much. You need to get a dog so you can use that. <laughs> so, uh, he's the commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim. I love that word, Mahanaim. Anyway, so Abner is a general of David, you know, he, he was the one that David called out and taunted back in 1 Samuel 26, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of man are you? Um, and he has decided to put Ishbosheth on the throne, and you, he's going to restore the house of Saul. And this is the first time we've heard of Ishbosheth, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, and the reason why? He wasn't important to the story until now. And this is what the writer of Samuel does. So his name is of interest because his name literally means man of shame. So it's not likely to be his real name. Uh, in First Chronicles 8.33 and 9.39, his name is given as Ishbaal. Ishbaal. So Second okay. um, Samuel 11.21, the writer does the same thing with Jerubbabel. Which Jerubbaal, uh, Jerubbaal, sorry, was the name Gideon was given in Judges six thirty two. Mm-hmm. You know, when his father, after he knocked down the idols, his father changed his name from Gideon to let Baal contend against him. Mm-hmm. So um, the writer in Samuel tends to take these names with Baal and change them to Sheth, so or Bosheth, which means shame, and so. The writer could be just removing any reference to Baal within the names, and because Baal was a source of shame. Or there is the bigger question, did Saul name one of his sons after Baal? Which could be, or it could be just Baal as in Lord, and right. not necessarily a deity, but just an influential person or a, respect, a title of respect. However, I keep having in my back of my mind the fact that his daughter had teraphim in her house. Mm-hmm. Saul made the trip to Endor, and he had a propensity to treat Yahweh the way Baal worshippers would treat Baal. Right. So there's a I think there's some wiggle room. Now Mahanaim was a city near J- the Jabbok River, uh, and it's also a city for priests. And it's, this is the place where Jacob encourages the angels before he goes to meet God. That's Genesis 32-2. So, got a lot of things going on here already. I mean, one, mm. one little verse there. Verse 9, and he, speaking of Abner, made him, Ishbosheth king over Gilead and Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. So, contrast this with David, who the... the Crowds and the masses of Judah proclaim to be king. They mm-hmm. want him to be king. Now we have a single man, Abner, acting as a kingmaker. David is the king over Judah, one tribe, and Ishbosheth is the tri- king over all of Israel, with the only exception being the tribe of Judah. However, despite having this title and being described as the king over all of these territories, he doesn't really seem to have much impact as a king. Right. Because during all of his reign, the whole two years of it, the Philistines still lived in all of his territory. They were never driven out. And so the fact that he he might be acknowledged in name, he never accomplished any of the the obligations hmm. of a king. So Mahanaim, which uh, was the uh, the city where he lived, was probably one of the few cities that did not have Philistines living there. It wasn't overrun with Philistines, which is probably why Abner chose it. I mean, just to be smart. However, it's an outlying city. And so it's kind of symbolic of the fact that this was, you know, Ishbosheth's rule does not have much weight. It's not really central to the lives of Israel any more than the city is central to the geography of Israel. 
the the name itself actually means two camps, and this is um, the place where Jacob remains behind, but sends the messengers back out to Esau. Mm-hmm. And when Jacob wrestles with God and receives the name Israel, so it's a border town, and it marks the beginning of Bashan, which is the home of Og. Uh, you can go back and read about Og some other time. Uh, Joshua twenty one thirty eight. we learn that this is a city set aside for Levites and priests in the territory of God, and is also a city of refuge. So he's living in a city that's the, the counterpart to Hebron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So very, very many similarities right there. So verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king of Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. Verse 11, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So we got some dates there, and um, this kind of provides some, some timeline problems, because it's never easy with the writer of Samuel, or it's always, you always got to work through it. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know if Ishbosheth became king over Israel right after Saul's death, or if for five and a half years in there there was no king, and then Abner made him king, or you know, two years and eight months later, Abner. We 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 don't know when it it falls in there, right? And where it falls in there kind of um, kind of helps us understand how to understand some of the, the events. So we're going to try to look at why, because the question really to answer when you have to answer why. Okay. So it's one part on one hand, it, I know it, my brain, when you try to put like all the pieces together, yeah, there's uh, a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts here. There are, uh, if you read that Abner immediately moves Ishbosheth into, you know, kingship, then it, it kind of makes sense from the perspective of, well, the country is celebrating Saul and Jonathan's heroic sacrifice in their death. Mm-hmm. Um, David is making it easier for them to accept Saul's son because David himself is celebrating Saul and his son, as we just saw in the last chapter. Sure. And, you know, they, they still have this memory of Abner being this great general who, who directed Saul's troops. So the, the perception being that if Abner would swear allegiance to Saul and now he's going to support his son, then we, we need to pay attention because Abner really was the de facto king under Saul's reign. We mm-hmm. saw that mm-hmm. earlier. And, you know, that kind of makes sense. But on the other hand, Israel was a bit of a mess under Saul's rule. It's under Saul's rule that the Philistines were allowed to come in and take over. Right. And so it may have taken a little while for Abner to persuade the people, hey, you need to, you need to accept this new son of Saul as your king. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know. Uh, but we do know that Abner is the one orchestrating Ishbosheth's rise to power. And really what it ends up being is Ishbosheth is the puppet, Abner's the power. Mm-hmm. The, Abner's the one, you know, he's he's holding on to this this position he had within Saul's government by recreating it with Ishbosheth. Now, what's really interesting about Abner is the rabbis love him. They they think he's great, and they um they offer a solution. They claim that Abner actually thought he was helping fulfill prophecy. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to to Genesis thirty five eleven. Uh, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, they've left lots, and Rachel had you know, hidden the teraphim, lotted, um, it wasn't lot, sorry, Laban. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, Laban okay. had ch- chased them down, and um, you know, Rachel's done everything she can to have a kid, and God and Jacob have this talk, and God promises Jacob and that you know, kings are going to descend from you, Plural kings are going to descend, Melakim. Um, and the rabbis interpreted this as the son that was born next. Well, the next son that's born is Benjamin. And Benjamin, of course, we know that Rachel died in childbirth with him and she's buried on the roadside. Mm-hmm. So they believe that 3511 is the promise of Benjamin's ability to rule. Okay. Now, of course, we've got this problem because in Genesis 49.10, the promise is given to Judah. Right. And so, 
That's in Jacob's Testament right before he dies. So the rabbis say that, that Abner said both prophecies had to be fulfilled. And in order to do that, then Saul and one of his sons had to reign because mm-hmm. the kings were going to descend from this son. Sure. So they believe that once this fulfillment had occurred, then Abner was going to switch his allegiance to David so that he could support the fulfillment of the second prophecy. Okay. So yeah, you got to love the way the rabbis work things out. (laughs) But I don't know if I can give Abner that much credit. Yeah, it seems a little (laughs) weird, but I I don't exactly know why, but I'm still working through that. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's Abner's definitely a political mover and shaker, and we're going to see that. Uh, and, And in that respect, he's very much like David. But I think we also have to remember David and Abner lived together. They both lived in the house of Saul for at least some yeah. period of time. They were buddies. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time... Because they, David was a general in Saul's army for a little while. Yeah, they didn't hate each other. They didn't, they didn't want to kill each other the whole story. And I think Abner probably did believe that Saul was the right king mm-hmm. and supported him, which at one point in time, that was totally true. Right. And so I think sometimes we forget Saul had been chosen and anointed by God. And, and sometimes, even if we think, hey, there's a problem here, if that's what God told you to do, you still need to keep operating in faith. Mm-hmm. The question mm-hmm. is, can we turn loose of that old thing God did to receive the new? And, you know, we see that with David and Saul, but we also see it when Jesus arrives, whenever mm-hmm. the Jews mm-hmm. are confronted with how do they properly interpret in Torah now. And so... Um, oh, we see that with Samuel. Oh. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Well, and you know, Samuel stayed up crying all night because God had rejected Saul. Yep. Now he was still obedient. And that's one of the, we've talked about that before. That's one of the things I love about Samuel is you never doubt how he feels. Right. But at the same time, he doesn't let what he feels get in the way of what he should yeah. do. Yeah, it doesn't run his life. Exactly. But he's not he's not pie in the sky, denial kind of prophet either so you know i think there's really something to be seen for that of course he also is kind of grumpy old man prophet sure, <laughs> so sure. we got the you know that's the thing about the characters in the bible when we read them and we see how complex they really are if mm-hmm. we put all of their story together instead of just taking out the fun stuff for the flannel graphs well and it's also also reading the bible is the like when we've said this a hundred <laughs> times probably but the list of things, or uh, not the list, the record of things that did happen, not the list of how things should have happened. Right. I mean, that's the, that's one thing we really struggle with in the church is going, just because it happened this way doesn't mean that this is the perfect way for things to have happened. Exactly. Well, and there's this, you were presented with these very complex, layered individuals. Mm-hmm. And it's really amazing to see how real they are because... Once you grasp that they really are people, mm-hmm. then it's so easy to find someone that you can identify with. Yep. And it stops being inaccessible. And I think that's one of the reasons why the, the Bible has become inaccessible to so many people is because they think it's all about holy people. Yep. And, yeah. and then they define holy people incorrectly. So and, Yeah. <laughs> and and then, then you read it and you know you have this idea that, the Old Testament is something completely different than what it is, and then you read it, and then you go, oh, man, uh, my, my faith's crazy and not founded on anything. And then, and then you have people walking away because they weren't taught how to think critically about this stuff. So Yeah, or they've been presented with just the complete wrong view where, you know, already we're seeing David and the changes he's making, and, and this has become standard good Christian practice to treat people equally, mm-hmm. to mourn over the death of even your enemy, to, to love those who hate you, bless mm-hmm. those who persecute you. These things that Jesus told us to do. Uh, but in David's day, they would have been so countercultural. I mean, we talk about being countercultural with Jesus, but look at what David's having to set up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, David, Jesus takes it way further than David ever did, but the seeds are being planted in order for Israel to to accept it. And that's one of the reasons why when Jesus speaks and Israel can't understand it, it's almost like, how can you not understand it? Right. So, 
Anyway. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, Jesus even says something similar to, is it Nicodemus? <laughs> How are you a teacher in Israel and you don't get this? Yeah. So anyway, but we'll let you think about that one. I, I know we've mentioned that before, but um, I think we're we're running up on time before we dump, jump into anything right. else. So uh, everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, be part of the conversation, ravencreeksc.com. Uh, Raven Creek SC on the social media, ravencreeksc at gmail.com. Email us, send us a note, let us know what you think. And uh, until then, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.